Sure. Um, well, you have to when you have a leading man like George Scott. You can't make it like campy and schlocky and like because that doesn't work for him because yeah. that's not what you cast him for. Though it would be amazing if you did. You'd be like, yeah, George, can you just um just like really ham it up? Just really. Can we <laughs> do like and ninja? Yeah, like ha- run your fingers through your hair, eyes, go you know, Google eyed, and yeah, I feel like that would be amazing. Horror Movie Survival Guide is a weekly podcast where two unlikely gorehounds delve into our horror movie notebook from college, which meticulously kept track of every film we watched in the horror section of our local video store in our quest to survive and to ensure we end up as the final girl. Join Julia and Marion as we revisit the classic and obscure horror VHS we viewed and logged in our notebook, breaking them down one by one, geeking out about all of the ghastly minutiae, and ultimately illuminating illuminating the path to survival. Hello. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Welcome to the Horror Movie Survival Guide podcast. I'm Julia Marchesi. And I'm Marion Kerr. This is the first podcast by Indie Popcorn, recorded here at The Circus. Uh, In this podcast, Julia and I go back and look at our old horror movie notebook uh, that recorded all the horror movies that we saw in college, which were many, Many. um, in order to extract what lessons we can to learn how to survive and ultimately end up as the final girl. We are a spoiler-heavy show. If you talk about horror movies, you kind of got to talk about death. So watch the movie before we talk about it, and mm -hmm. then... You know, talk about it exactly, and well, then you can, and then you get, and then the conversation will be a lot more fun. Uh, this is episode number twelve. We will be discussing the Change Lane from nineteen eighty, and this episode is called My Metal. My Metal, which will make sense later. The tagline for the Change Lane is: Two people live in this house. One of them has been dead for seventy years. It's a good tagline. It is a good tagline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the poster so this, of this movie is really good too. I really yeah. like the poster of this. The creepy like wheelchair, turn of the century wheelchair. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that. This film was directed by Peter Medic and is stars George C. Scott and Trish Van Devere, who were actual husband and wife in real life, which mm-hmm. is adorable. Yeah, that's pretty cute. Um, and Melvin Douglas as well is in this film. Yeah, Melvin Douglas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this film is based on a true story. There was a writer named Russell Hunter who lived in a mansion in Denver called the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion, mm-hmm. which he says uh, some really creepy stuff happened to him. And this was in the 60s, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, he... The house would, 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 there was lots of banging going on. The walls would shake. The, there was pipes. Mm-hmm. There was doors. The, the pipes would make noise every morning at 6 a.m. Things would manifest suddenly like on like tables that weren't there before. Um, and uh, he discovered that there was like a whole story, right, about this house and about like a little boy. Uh, yes, he had found a secret room with a journal in it from a boy, a young boy who had been isolated by his parents for being sickly. And then mm-hmm. there was... Uh, a mysterious, like the boy was leading him to this mysterious death, and the the writer, this was um, Russell Hunter, got a medium, and the the boy spoke through him and said that he had been killed, and sent him on this kind of like mystery, sent him on this kind of mystery of his death. Um, so this was based, this film was based on this story. Mm-hmm. So um, we start. Uh, George C. Scott has a wife and daughter. The opening sequence of this movie, is unbelievable, unbelievable, like. Uh, you have you have them in the snow. They're pushing the car. The car is broken down. Uh, and his wife is played by Jean Marsh, uh, who's a British actress who I like a lot. Who uh, I think most people will know is uh, being the the witch in Willow. Um, so she just has this sort of cameo as sort of yeah his wife in the very beginning pushing this car through the snow. Uh, with their daughter. With a daughter. And mm-hmm. so George C. Scott goes off to the side of the road to make a phone call to get uh, some, a tow truck while his wife and daughter have a snowball fight, which is so adorable. Adorable until. 
hit by a Mack truck. Yeah, so they have this kind of thing where like he's on the phone and they cut back and forth between him being at the phone booth, daughter and wife playing, you know, having a snowball fight, Mack truck coming, phone booth, snowball fight, Mack truck, phone booth, snowball fight, Mack truck. And then he just like turns and like another car was coming and it caused the truck to veer. And the wife like jumps in front of her daughter and like grabs her so they go out together and the truck just takes them out right in front of George Scott's face and then title card you're like the changeling and you're like wow she's movie like yeah thanks yeah I'm in for a treat with this one definitely so uh distraught by his wife and daughter's death he decides to move to Seattle yeah uh where he has a friend who hooks him up with a lady Claire Norman played by Trish Vandeveer who works for the Seattle Historical Preservation Society Mm -hmm. and knows of a house which might befit such a widow as he is Mm -hmm. uh he's a composer Mm -hmm. so he's going to be teaching at the University of Washington, I, I guess. think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, they, they have this gorgeous house that he's moved into. That's very it's obviously they're selling it for way cheap for a reason, which right. we will find out. But until then, you're just like, okay, this is an incredibly amazing house. Right. Which, What's wrong with it? Yeah. But and again, I feel like this is where sort of in the rules of um, you know trying to survive horror movies, this this is where my weakness is. Is I feel like the estate agent would pull me up to this like amazing Victorian house that nobody wants to live in and has been abandoned for a hundred years and blah blah blah. But the bones are good and like all this kind of stuff. And there's like every reason in the world to be like. Nope, get in the car, back on the driveway, to, you know. Um, and I would be so enamored with the house. You would I, live in the house? 100% I would live in the house. I'd be like, what? And it's at a good price, too? Well, okay. Like, yeah, 100%. I what if it was like the Amityville Horror House? But see, I don't feel like that house is that amazing. I feel like this, this particular house that she shows him in the Changeling, that is a sweet house. Yeah. Like, the three-story, like, beautiful architecture. Like, if there was something, like, kind of very... Like, I don't know, I just would get in, like, enraptured in, like, the pretty, like, oh, so pretty, so old, so okay. interesting. We get your downfall. I yeah. see where it is. That's my weak, that's my weak point. I, I, I see it now. I would incant Book of the Dead, and you would fall for a gorgeous house. Pretty old house? Like, done. Done and dusted. Yeah. Uh, so he he's, moves into this house, which, by the way, they built... Like the entire front of, yeah. which is like incredibly gorgeous, and it's like it's massive. Like yeah. it's really, it's very like really wide, three stories tall. Like just like beautifully built. Like yeah, when the, we were like, wow, where did they find that house? And then later we were like, they built that. Like that's so crazy. And uh, as in Russell Hunter's real life uh, thing, George C. Scott moves in the house. Things start to go a little bit weird. He right. starts hearing noises, and he starts. Um, Always at 6 a.m., exactly at 6 a.m., things happen. Yeah, he starts um, hearing, like, loud noises, and uh, he is composing, and then someone will call him away, and the piano keys will start playing by themselves. And, like, the little things. This movie is, um, as we're sort of describing it, like, tonally, it's a, it's a very slow burn. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very, like, things start being creepy in very small little ways. It's not more like, it's not, it's... It's not like something big will happen and it's like, uh-uh-uh. It's just a little bit like, oh, that's a little creepy. That's a little weird. That's a little strange. And these things kind of build up over time. Which is which is great. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, there's so many movies now that just kind of play on, like, the jump scares, which I find are such lazy scaries. Like, you can get anybody with a jump scare, but, like, do you start to, like, build up the creepiness 
until yeah. it leads to something big, that takes talent. And also I think what's really interesting about this movie, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, is uh, the unlikely protagonist that is George C. Scott. Like, it's yeah. so rare to sort of see, like, an older, middle-aged guy. So when these same things start to happen to this guy, it's almost like the tone of this film kind of matches its character, insofar as that, like, you know, the piano keys move on them on their own. You think you hear a banging at 6 a.m., or you do hear a banging, rather, at 6 a.m. That protagonist is not like, oh, what was that? What's going on? Da, da, da. Creepily investigating my nightgown with a candlestick. You know, like, that guy. That guy's like, what? What is that? All right, let me get the guy in here, and I'll have to take a look at it. And da, da. You know what I mean? Like, he has this kind of, like, uh, look, I've been through a lot. You know, I'm not going to scare easy. What do you got? And, like, the movie's got a lot. But, like, the slow burn of it very much matches him, which I think is really interesting and very well done. And George, he's got such like a badass that you're like, all right, he's going to kick some ass. Yeah. But also like, how are you going to scare George Scott? Good luck house. Like, good luck with that. You know? Well, he does find um, a hidden attic room, uh, which has been there. We learned since 1906 Mm -hmm. where he finds a child's wheelchair as well as um, a journal and uh, some of the little kid things, including a music box, which has creepily been playing the thing, the new piece he has been composing himself. Right, which he thought that he's been making up, and then the very thing he's been working on that he just came up with in this house is in this music box. So he's been tape, he's tape recorded what he's played, and so they play it back, and it's the exact same song, totally. in the exact same key, the same tempo, and the whole bit. Yeah. Uh, so he knows something's up. Yeah, and he enlists the, um, the lady who sold him the house, who works for the Historical Society, he sort of She's sort of his partner in this movie, where every time things like that happen, he calls her because obviously he's isolated right now and is like, um, so this happened, this piece I was playing. And so they're, the two of them are kind of working together to start to unravel this mystery a bit. Um, and there's a scene where they go uh, to a concert and they hear a speech by a Senator Carmichael, who mm-hmm. will come in to play later. Who is Melvin Douglas. Who is Melvin Douglas. Um, and then they decide to call in a medium. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, George C. Scott, John Russell is his character's name, plus... Uh, Claire Norman mm-hmm. and her mom. Yeah, <laughs> she brings along her elderly mother to this medium uh, séance, which is not, doesn't make a lot of sense. We, we, thought, we thought it was kind of weird, but it's I'm a like, great medium. I like this medium sequence a it's lot. Like medium couple, it is. It's like the, the husband and wife, and mm-hmm. the, like the wife goes into the trance and she starts automatic writing, and then mm-hmm. the husband reads what he says, what she's writing down, and he says it in a very kind of matter of fact, just like he's done this a thousand times. Whatever you know, help. Joseph, help, my medal. Like, he's just reading them uh-huh. as she's writing them, and I like And he that also it, pulls the sheets, too. Yeah, it's very perfunctory, mm-hmm. and I like that it seems like this is something they do a lot. Yeah. That was kind of a cool I, I cool do touch. enjoy that. Mm-hmm. There's also a bit in this seance sequence where they have this, like, six-foot-tall metal cone in the middle of the table. Yeah. But I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, man, I don't know if I'm really, like, up on the whole, like, parapsychology, how these things work, but they were all doing this thing around this cone. We're like... Is the cone supposed to do something? What's the cone mean? Is the cone is that like all the energy gets harnessed through the cone and it's I don't know like I don't don't know what it means. I don't know either. So we were like, do you know what the cone is? Explain the cone. Please explain the cone to us because we were a little confused about the cone. Uh, But the seance ends. uh, The uh, glass flies off the table and smashes, and the seance is is end. Uh, But George George goes back to listen to the tape of the seance, and although you could not hear it at the time. Now on the tape, he can hear the little boy's voice answering the questions that the medium had said. Right. How did you die? Where are you in this house? And mm-hmm. we learned that he's a little boy named Joseph Carmichael who has lost his medal yeah. and was possibly killed by his father. Right. And that the banging um, that you hear is um, the boy was drowned in a bathtub upstairs in that little attic. And as he was drowned, he banged on the side of the metal tub. And so that's the sound of the banging that, you, that he keeps hearing every morning at 6 a.m is pretty scary. <laughs> um, so then uh, we go back to the Historical Preservation Society where <laughs> one of the ladies uh, explains 
that the uh, my favorite quote uh, she mm-hmm. she says uh, that house is not fit to live in. No one's been able to live in it. It doesn't want people. Which again, when you're saying that to George C. Scott, like he like feel like you know your standard protagonist in most of these movies would be like, oh, oh my gosh, everything just went up nine notches. And George C. Scott kind of looks at her like. Okay, you know, um, and it's yeah, so, you sure know, lady. yeah, and it's just like it's again, it's just really great. But uh, again, George C. Scott becomes sort of like other protagonists that we've had in these situations becomes invested in figuring out the mystery. Like, okay, this is the spirit of a dead little boy. Obviously, like that is very close to his heart at this time in his life. So he wants to figure out like what happened. Where is this little boy? If a little boy was killed, where did he go? Like what happened to him? But they do make a good point of using the fact that his wife and child just died to kind of this is why he's kind of intrigued to bring to be into this. Right. Even though he says like I don't want to do it because he just had to get over his wife and child's death. But yeah, you know the the little uh, the rubber ball that his daughter used to play with is something that features in this film that is thrown mm-hmm. down the stairs and yeah. so it's something that you know the little boy is trying to lure him to help using his dead daughter in a way. Yeah, okay. and I think that that's actually another good lesson in sort of the like trying to survive these things is I feel like when sort of the supernatural forces are trying to get you to help them in a certain sense, you know, providing they're not like demons or what or not, like you shouldn't spend a lot of time fighting that kind of going back to the sort of the, the poltergeist thing that Joe Beth Williams character did is that she just, it helped a great deal that she was just like, okay, this is the deal. This is, you know, they have my kid. This is the thing. But this what is, if you the know. demon's playing like a Captain Howdy kind of role where like, you're going to be like, Hey, play with me. I'm fun. And then I'm going to really a- attack you. And but that's you. where I think you have to make the distinction is like, what are you dealing with? But that's again, where I think you have to believe to figure out what you're dealing with. I feel like the longer the time the characters spend with like, there must be some rational explanation. The longer you're, the, the further away you're throwing what am I really dealing with and you have to figure out is this a Captain Howdy situation or is this like dead kid situation like what you got and I know I, it's, but it's hard though because I feel like as a human that's like that's your normal response when there's something that's unbelievable that's happening like you're not going to immediately be like okay I got it and like do it because you're going to be like no ghosts don't exist this is impossible but see I don't think that's true because I think it depends because I feel like there's probably more people that believe that ghosts exist than we think and so what I enjoy about Poltergeist and about this movie to a certain extent as well is it captures character at a time in their life where they're probably very willing to believe and I feel like there are times in our lives where we would be less inclined and times in our life where we would be more open to it and considering what this character just went through and now what he's seen and it being a little boy and the death of his own daughter and you know all these kind of things like he's very open to it in this life so he's like he's kind of the perfect catalyst to like give this kid kind of peace, you know, that he's obviously demanding very aggressively, you know. And it's also helpful to have access to the Historical Preservation Society. <laughs> right, yeah. As we learn. Well done, real done screenwriters. Yeah. <laughs> George C. Scott goes to a gentleman um, who has some old maps of the city of Seattle and says that the people who owned his house also owned another piece of land where there was a well. Um, and so he goes to this house and learns that the woman who lives there, her daughter, has been having nightmares seeing a little boy coming out of her floorboards. Floorboards. Floor floorboards. <laughs> floorboards. Um, she's just a little boy. They're not like, they're like, no, you're just a drunk little girl like that. That's, that's just wrong with you. Uh, so they decide to dig into the house uh, right. and find the well where he actually finds the body yeah. of the little boy. Which is pretty sad. So, uh, but this means nothing unless he can find the metal that right. the little boy has talked about. So he sneaks back in when like the police and everyone have taken the bones away and he keeps digging, goes down the well, keeps digging some more and does find the metal. So at first like he gives up and he's, but then it kind of, 
undigs itself from from it the like dirt. helps him. Yeah, you're right. I and so he finds the metal. Then he realizes, validates his story that mm-hmm. there was this other Joseph Carmichael. So what he pieces together is that this senator that we'd seen him earlier at the concert has usurped the place of this dead boy. Right, because the dead boy is the actual Joseph Carmichael, and when he was killed, this other person was got was. Um, sort of extracted from an orphanage, I forget where, somewhere in Europe or something, right? No, because they said that he did it there, and then they took him abroad. Oh, that's right. They took him abroad. So then when he came back when he was like 21, nobody could tell that it wasn't him any, anymore. And so the senator, who is now an old man, is the changeling, right. is the one that was, you know, that took the place of this actual child. Right. So the and f- has grown up as to become a senator and all the wealth and all the prestige and whatever. So the, fa- the father of this, this young boy that he's killed is that he's there's money, of course. It's always money involved, and mm-hmm. the little boy is sickly. And if the little boy dies, he gets nothing. So he decides to switch them so that he can have a healthy one, mm-hmm. and then he'll get the money. Correct. Um, so mm-hmm. George C. Scott does um, what is never a good idea, where you run into the tarmac screaming and th- like start sh- thrusting a medal in someone's face, right? And then shouting your conspiracy theories about dead boys and medals and things like that. And you know, as everyone's someone's surra- getting on a plane, right? It's not everyone a good surrounds idea. the senator and tells him to go away. Um, but obviously, the senator, as the plane takes off, kind of looks back, like something about what George C. Scott is saying seems intriguing or interesting or hmm. so he dispatches captain dewitt mm-hmm. i don't know why i remember that but they like say it a lot like captain dewitt they do come out <laughs> uh he goes out to kind of uh strong arm church he's gotten to keeping his mouth shut uh-huh. uh which again very hard thing to do very hard thing to come yeah. in and be like listen george she's got i'm gonna tell you what for and you you're can't like really tell him no what to do at all no you're not get out <laughs> Uh, but Captain DeWitt learns his lesson as he is uh, killed shortly afterwards in a car accident. Yeah. And uh, so amazing. the house has had enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also George Scott has had enough. He's, uh-huh. you know, c- breaks yeah. down finally. He, and that's my favorite quote is uh, he, you know, he once he has figured out the whole metal thing and has figured out the puzzle and the house keeps doing insane things. And so he has this kind of meltdown and screams out at the house, you goddamn son of a bitch. What do you want from me? I've done everything I could do for you. Um, it's like fair, fair house, you know. I don't, I don't know what else you want. But then I think he realizes that um, after the death of Captain Dewitt, the senator agrees to see George C. Scott, and so he walks in with like the medal and the whole story. Um, and that scene is great. Between that's probably like piso acting scene, like probably the best scene in the movie between Melvin Douglas and George C. Scott, mm-hmm. um, where he like really like lays out the whole story for him about like who your dad was and who you are. And Melvin Douglas has his own medal. But it's like, nope, that's that's a fake. Like, this is the original metal. Um, and Melvin Douglas is this great mixture of, like, how dare you talk about my father that way? My father was a great man. Slash behind the eyes, he's always kind of known something wasn't right. Like and you get, he kind of tears up and Definitely. he's like, don't talk about my dad. And totally. then there's also, uh, there's a George C. Scott scene where he's crying in this film. And it's like watching someone like that cry is the most heartbreaking thing. Like yeah. the tough old man. And there's he's a lot like, of tough old men crying in this movie. You're just like so sad. Uh, but then Melvin Douglas realizes that, that he really did take, his father really did kill this other person and he is the changeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this shot of him going up the staircase into the attic room and you're not really clear is he really there is this like a metaphor thing is he imagining it right uh, as the house catches on fire mm-hmm. and he is uh he is burned to death mm-hmm. i imagine no he dies of a heart attack yeah he, so it, it's like this thing where at the begin the way it's shown in the movie it's kind of unclear so basically george c scott leaves 
Melvin Douglas leaves him with the medal because Melvin Douglas is like, how much do you want? Like, you're bringing me this story, you know, like talking about my dad, like how much money do you want? And George Scott's like, I don't want anything. I'm just letting you know. I'm walking away from this. This is the truth. I just want you to know. Bye. And like leaves. And Melvin Douglas ha- takes both medals and looks at them side by side. And George C. Scott goes back to the house and it all starts crashing in on him and fires and whatever. And, uh, and the wheelchair comes down, this, you know, chases them down. And, um, but then when the house starts to go up in flames, the medals start, you know, moving on the desk of Melvin Douglas. And then all of a sudden, Melvin Douglas, George C. Scott sees him going up the stairs and everything's on fire. And as Julie and I are watching it, we're like, is he really there? Is he not there? But then they cut back to Melvin Douglas kind of in trance looking at the two medals that are jostling. So it's sort of like spiritually he's there and he goes all the way up back into the room where the original murder take pla- takes place and kind of sees what his dad actually did and like comes to accept I believe the truth of what really happened um, and then he has a heart attack back in his original office and dies um, and the house burns to the ground house burns to the ground Jersey Scott gets out in the nick of time and uh, they're kind of a final couple in this yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him, the real there. estate agent. Yeah, they kind of make it out um, with the house. And then also that's when we realize, like, oh, they had to build the house because they have this whole wide shot where, like, the entire thing is engulfed in flames. And we're like, very impressive. Um, and we realize in, in ghost movies, you kind of have to destroy the house. Poltergeist, the house is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Lady in White, the house is destroyed. This movie, the house is destroyed. That's true, yeah. You just got to destroy You know what we don't house. like in movies? Old houses. Like, don't like them. Why did nobody burn, them burn the down that? The Amityville Horror House. Nobody ever burned that down. It just like still stands there. In real life or in the movies? Both. It doesn't get burned down any of the sequels? I don't think so. Just burn that puppy down, man. That's I mean, got some prob- bad juju. Probably. Except for new people that live in Amityville, they're just like, I don't know what those Lutzes are talking about because like this house is fine. Because the people who have lived in it have lived in it now for like 25 years and they got no problems. So they're like, why are we burning our house down? You know, but in the movies, burn that house down. Burn like, the house down. Burn that house down, you know, 100%. Um, so, so yeah, they burn this house down. So and- how far would you be willing to go for a child ghost? I mean, like, probably, pr- probably George C. Scott Lang's probably pretty far. Yeah, I don't think I might skip the part about running onto the tarmac and being like, "Senator, I know about your father." Probably skip that part. Um, but, um, but yeah, I could see myself getting like way into it, like getting getting over into it. Well, um, I know that you know. So this is based on Russell Hunter's true story mm-hmm. of the, of this actual occurrence, and I have to I have to say, like, I feel like that would be such. A satisfying feeling at the end when you're like, I solved it. Uh-huh, and totally. now the ghost is happy. Like, uh-huh. that must feel really good. That must feel really good, yeah. Very I, few people have that feeling in the world, and yeah. I feel like he would. Well, and also, too, I just, again, and maybe it's because this the character is this older, kind of more world weary protagonist, but I just really like that. I feel like in a lot of these movies, you know, the big bad is kind of that you're up against, and the goal is just to make it stop. Like, it just needs to stop. This is unnatural, and it needs to stop. And I like, for him, he's just like, no, no, but, like, everything has a purpose, so what is going on here? Like, why is a... I like that kind of approach to, like, you know, sort of dealing with a ghost, where you're like, well, there's a... It's sort of like Lady in White, right? Where they're like, this is... There is a ghost because there is an unresolved wrong, and I just need to resolve it. And once it's resolved, then the problem will stop. But I'm, I don't need to be like, scary, move out of my house, or, or immediately burn it down without solving the issue, or whatever. Like, I like that he's just more kind of methodical about it, and I appreciate that. But that's always the ghost story, isn't it? It's like something happened to the ghost and not happy, and he can't rest, and so that's right. why they're But then there. I think I feel like we usually have to deal with like a half hour of just being terrified before they finally get to the place right. where they're just like, okay, what's up? Like, let's solve this. And I feel like he just kind of gets there immediately. Like, he seems unsettled by it, but they have, you know, they have that great sequence where um, 
the ball that was his daughter's um, keeps manifesting itself coming down the staircase. And then finally he's like had enough. So he takes the ball. Remember he gets in his car mm-hmm. and he like drives to that bridge and he chucks it off the bridge. And then he comes back to his house and the ball comes back down the staircase. And again, I feel like most standard protagonists would be like, what? like whatever. And, you know, and George C. Scott's just like, okay, like something's trying to tell me something. What is that? And I guess I think some people would sort of think maybe that would make it boring if the main character didn't freak out and didn't just like, like you were saying, shots of terror and jump scares and whatever. But this movie's just such a great slow burn that way. And I really appreciate like the intelligence of it. Sure. Um, well, you have to, when you have a leading man like George C. Scott, you can't make it like campy and schlocky and like, cause that doesn't work for him because yeah. that's not what you cast him for. Though it would be amazing if you did. You'd be like, yeah, George, can you just, um, just like really ham it up? Just really, can we <laughs> Singing do like dancing. Yeah. Like ha- r- run your fingers through your hair, eyes, go, you know, Google eyed. And yeah, I feel like that would be amazing. Well, I think that there needs to be more horror movies with this kind of protagonist where you got this kind of like yeah. take charge older guy who's just going to like get, get down to the brass tacks. Yeah. Because a lot of times you just have kind of screaming girl who doesn't figure anything out and that's really boring. So, or Because I feel like they feel like the vulnerability in the character is always like their youth. And it's like, I feel like there's so many other versions of vulnerability. And I feel like for him, you take like this otherwise very kind of strong leading man, sort of like the dad figure. And, you know, you just take all that away from him in this like, you know, brutal you know, killing of his uh, wife and child, and you have a very vulnerable character. It's just mm-hmm. not traditionally so. So it's kind of outside the box that way, and I appreciate that a lot. Uh, so this film had a budget of six hundred thousand dollars, and it made five point three million. So this, I mean, right? this film did really well, mm-hmm. as as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as our uh, rating system goes. Uh, Marion, you want to talk about our gore, gore system? Factor? Okay, yeah. So we have a gore factor zero to, oh, sorry, zero, hello, no, one to five. Um, one is not enough blood to fill a Dixie cup. Two, a puddle of blood. Three, enough blood to gross out the average viewer. Four, bathtub of blood. And five, run for that barf bag. And we gave it? Um, big fat zero. It's got a zero. Not enough blood to even fill a Dixie cup, which it's, is accurate because there is no blood in this movie. No, it we is have a, a child drowning. And that's pretty much... House on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets a shard of glass in his neck. Okay. Maybe we should have given her one for that. I feel like that's kind of nasty, like pulling a piece of glass out of your neck. I mean, I feel like that would have been like half. That would have been... Okay. I don't know. So, well, it just proves that this is why we have the different system is because mm-hmm. we have our gore system right. versus our, our actual opinion on the film because films can be gory or non-gory and that does not necessarily rate how good the film is. Correct. So for our movie rating system is zero to five chainsaws. Uh, one chainsaw if you're desperate, two chainsaws if you barely qualifies as a horror film, three chainsaws seen worse and seen better, four chainsaws not too shabby, five chainsaws fantastical. This film got four from yeah. both of us, mm-hmm. not too shabby. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not exactly out of five, but it's a really good film and definitely worth a watch. Yeah, and I think also too, it just depends like what you're going for. Like I think if you're looking for like the super crowd pleaser, like you and a dozen of your buddies, like we're going to like eat popcorn and talk back to the screen and blah, blah, blah. Okay, like maybe this movie's not for you. But like if you want something that probably will give you nightmares if you watch by yourself, like it's pretty good, you know, because it's really scary. I think this is definitely like Marion style horror film where like, um, there's no gross. I didn't have to look away once, not even one. I saw every minute of this movie. Um, and, uh, and I, it was super creepy. Like I was super creeped out, you know? Um, so yeah. So we are horror movie survival guide. You can find us on all the social medias. Uh, 
under We Are Inter Survival on Twitter and Horror Movie Survival Guide on everything else. Uh, my name is Julia Marchesi. You can find me at Julia C. Marchesi and on the on the things. On all the things. Um, and uh, I'm Marion Arker on the Twitter thing. Uh, so thank you for joining us to talk about The Changeling. Next week, we're very excited to be talking about George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. We're coming to get you, Barbara. So excited. <laughs> it's so great. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. There's going to be a lot of giggling and, and jo- just joy. Lots of <laughs> extra, joy. Extra joy. Extra giggling. George Romero-level joy. <laughs> it's pretty high level. It is high. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you guys.